welcome to the Car Story Podcast, brought to you by the Peterson Automotive Museum. My name is Kyle Hyatt, and uh, we have for you today a pair of interviews recorded by our co-host James McKeon over the last couple of weeks, and they are fantastic. First up, we will have Alan Peltier, who is the president of HRE Performance Wheels, one of the finest automotive wheel makers in the world. They do everything in their factory in Southern California to order for each individual customer. It's a pretty incredible setup. After that, we will have a really fantastic interview with Doug Herbert. If that name sounds familiar to you, it's probably because he had a really successful career drag racing. Unfortunately, he suffered some tragedy in the form of uh, losing a couple of his kids to a car accident. And rather than just sit there and take it, he decided to do the best thing that he could think of, which was to start a charity, uh, which was going to teach kids how to drive. And not just driver's ed drive, but drive and teach them car control and try to dissuade them from driving distracted. It's a pretty incredible organization. It's called Brakes, and we uh, were really happy to have had him here. So enjoy. Here's James. For the Peterson Automotive Museum, this is Car Stories with your host, James McKeon. And today we're meeting with Alan Peltier, president of HRE Performance Wheels. How are you going today, Alan? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. Thank you, I should say. <laughs> Alan, uh, I understand you have an engineering background, and before HRE, you worked at an aerospace company, Northrop Grumman. Mm-hmm. So does that essentially mean in your previous life you're a rocket scientist? Uh, not quite. I mean, you know, uh, definitely an engineer. So I worked at uh, Northrop Grumman as, uh, in aerospace doing uh, structural analysis, which really meant spending a lot of time in front of the computer doing FEA and stuff on uh, fuselage structures and things for aircraft, primarily in composites. Um, a lot of military and NASA type stuff. It was cool. It was uh, exciting in terms of the technology. Um, I, I just, my, I guess my personality is more toward uh, smaller businesses. And okay. I wanted to create some of the culture in that. So, uh, I, yeah, I think my employee number was in the 70,000s. Sure, so sure. So they were right. saying there was a few people before you which yeah. your time there. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and probably a few people after you and then yeah, you left there. Yeah, for sure. So how did you transition then going from there, from that form of engineering into where you are now as a president of HRA? Um, you know, what I was doing in terms of my everyday job at Northrop Grumman actually worked really well for going to HRE. And when I, after I got my uh, master's degree, I had moved to a different group and was sort of spending a lot of time doing this structural analysis work. And I started looking for a small company and HRE sort of stood out. And they looked like they had potential. They looked like they might have a need for somebody like me. Sure. And uh, this is back in 1999. So I reached out to them just on a whim. You know, hey, are you looking for an engineer? And it turned out they were. Um, so I went down and visited. There were only 13, 14 people back then. Um, and they, they needed an engineer. And they needed somebody to come in and, and, and help them uh, with the, uh, uh, the design and development of the wheels. And so it was a good fit. Um, definitely the, the skills I had learned at Northrop Grumman uh, transferred directly. In fact, what I was doing at yeah, HRE was significantly easier because it was aluminum versus composite. So it was uh, easier technically. Um, the challenge was I went to working 16-hour days, six days a week, you know, so it was a little bit different. Sure, know. sure. <laughs> a bit of a, <laughs> a lot strain more Sure, certainly, <laughs> certainly. Yeah. So does that mean then that if you said you moved across through the designing, you're still doing some of that designing now? Are you saying you still get your hands dirty in creating some of those um, wheels? I don't get to do as much anymore. Uh, the guys uh, don't like me to do that. Okay. Um, they, uh, I do have a hand. So it's sort of a team of four. Um, and we'll, a couple of us have some input. I have, unfortunately, I have veto power on a lot of things. <laughs> 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 but 
I don't do the bulk of the work. Um, a, l a lot of the designs today have gotten so sophisticated and so uh, modern and contemporary um, that the even just the modeling of them, not the, not the engineering side, but the design side is so complex and time consuming. Uh, one, as my, in my position as president, I, I don't have time to do that. Also, the modeling is, is very, very advanced. And so it takes a lot of time and a lot of knowledge to do it. Um, and so for me, it's really more looking over their shoulder saying, mm, that's not going to fly, let's tweak. Um, and sort of looking at the bigger picture and overall balance of the design and making sure that we're really hitting the, um, the overall intent that we were trying to do. And so it's a, it's a matter of balancing that uh, uh, the market target uh, and the overall feel of the design and also really capturing the details of the, the features and all of that. And that's where our guys are better than me. Um, when it comes to that detail work. Today, the sophistication and level of uh, time and effort they put into refining those details to where they're just perfect uh, is so far beyond what I used to do. And what I do is, if I do design something today, it, it tends to be very uh, purposeful, uh, sort of our classic series, and sort of they actually, they almost look like a throwback to the 90s or the early 2000s or something, or more motorsports looking or something. And so, uh, but I'll be honest, even today, uh, it's difficult for me to get time to to even do that kind of thing. Certainly. So, but then can you at least talk us through how, for example, one of your engineers or designers go about getting a, a wheel from concept actually through to creating one and then putting it on yeah. a, a car to test fit it? Yeah, again, it's it's a team effort. So what we'll do is we'll identify a, a market. Let's say we're going to go after the high-end supercar market or something like that, Ferraris and, and such. We'll sort of look at the design language that's coming from the current vehicles. And we'll make sure that our wheels uh, enhance that or um, are appropriate for that. We don't want to take a really soft design and put it on something that's really sharp and aggressive design-wise and vice versa. And so we sort of take our cues from current automotive design and where we think automotive design is going. So we don't want to be out in front of it. We don't want to be too far behind it. And then we're going to take that and then come up with some general concepts. And we'll usually figure out some sort of stylistic feature that we want to highlight in, in that family of wheels. So when we design wheels, usually they, it's called a series, and there's maybe three to five styles. And they'll have some similar design element in them that ties in together. And you'll see that they're a family. And we'll focus on that and try to come up with a way to take that and integrate that into the different styles. And so you can think, okay, there's, there's only so many wheel designs. There's mesh, there's five-spoke, there's, you know, there's different multi-spoke, there's different concepts. And how do you take modern design features and really evolve those designs over time so you're not just making the same thing over and over again and really making something that again is appropriate and enhances the design of the car last thing we ever want to do is put a wheel on a car and ruin it we see that a lot unfortunately sure. you take an exotic and you throw some horrible wheels on it you know like, what was the point of that you know and we don't ever want to do that from a performance uh, from a design perspective and from a performance pr perspective we don't want to um, hurt the vehicle Sure, sure. And then, um, obviously, you've been 17 years there at HRE. Mm -hmm. um, do you want to tell us a little bit on the history of HRE and how it came to be to where it is today, where it's, would say, somewhere, the one of the larger like automotive and luxury brands in the market? Yeah, I mean, <coughs> HRE started in the late 70s. I think uh, it was importing Hayashi racing wheels. Um, and at some point in the mid-80s, I think the, um, they stopped doing that and started focusing on making their own wheels. And that went for a decade or so, and I'm not sure the history back then, but our, our current owners uh, bought the company uh, in, in 1993, and they still own it. They actually live up here. Um, 
and then I say in the late 90s, uh, it changed, it shifted its focus. Before that, we were really focused on sort of the weekend warrior, sort of autocross and, and amateur motorsport and things like that. Um, in the late 90s, HRE really made a strategic decision to start focusing on three-piece wheels, particularly three-piece forged wheels for the street application. And that really hadn't been done a lot at that time. And after a while, that started working out really well. But then we decided, you know, we don't really want to be just a three-piece wheel company. We want to be just a, a wheel company. We want to be the best wheel company we can be. And so we brought in uh, one-piece forged and some other uh, things. And so for us, it's not really the the way we make a wheel or the uh, the construction technique. It's just how nice of a wheel can we make. And today, uh, I mean, we're known for three-piece wheels from our history, but today we sell two-to-one and, tr- and one-piece versus two-piece, or three-piece, rather. So um, it's not so much... Uh, uh, again, that construction methodology is just—it's just the mindset of trying to make the best wheels possible. You know, and today, today we we are moving back into more motorsport. So we're doing amateur motorsport, we're doing professional motorsport, we're sponsoring teams and things like that. And so now it's sort of uh, we're sort of doing everything from luxury cars, SUVs to racing to normal Ferraris and Porsches and stuff. So, so how is it difficult to for HRE to do that split? Because obviously they're very different from being, say, a streetcar to an SUV to right. a racing car. So how does that work? Is it a yeah. factor in the designing or anything Absolutely. like that as well? Oh yeah, no. So the 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 you can imagine. Um, the priority uh, in a motorsport wheel is is uh, is light lightness, right? It needs to be very lightweight. The mass needs to be very low. Uh, the stiffness needs to be very high. Um, the strength obviously needs to be very high. And so rotational inertia needs to be low. So things like that, those are the focuses. And the style, I'll be honest, comes secondary. Now the wheels end up being really beautiful. We don't believe that well-engineered products end up, we don't think that, if it's ugly, it's probably not well-engineered, <laughs> put it that way. And so even our racing stuff is actually really pretty. Um, and then as you move toward the street, obviously style starts to start to filter in more and more as a, as a priority. And then as you move into more of the luxury side, it really comes about comes to be about um, style and in cases of big sedans and SUVs, strength. You need to not so much focus on the weight, but you're focusing more on the style and the, the high strength. And the load ratings get much, much higher as you go to SUVs and things like that. If you're going to put it on a new Bentayga or something like that, it needs to be extremely, extremely strong. So... Uh, at that point, really, your style and strength. So it's it's a, it's a, it's a spectrum, and depending on that market that we're going after with that particular wheel line or that particular wheel, um, the focus will change definitely um, depending on what it is we're doing. Sure. And then in those um, 17 years that have been with HRE, obviously there's been some wheels that have come, gone, designs have certainly changed over time. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you'd like to see that had come back, maybe, say, spinners or floating rims? <laughs> um, uh you keep bringing up 17 years. Uh, there's, I think you're trying to point out how old I am. I think uh, spinners is uh, not something anybody, I think, wants to see come back. Uh, I do have an interesting uh, bit of trivia about spinners. Oh, we'd love to hear it. Um, it will be shocking for most people that know HRE well. Uh, HRE was actually the private label manufacturer for the very first uh, set of spinners that were ever made. Really? So a company called Dobbin, and they're great guys, uh, brought this idea to us. And um, they were based on the base wheel was an HRE wheel, and the spinner was attached to an HRE wheel. So we were actually the manufacturer for the very first uh, spinners. They didn't have our name on it. It wasn't our brand. It wasn't something sure. we would do, obviously. We're a performance wheel company. Mm-hmm. 
but they were looking for something that was really high quality and, and somebody that had the flexibility to make this crazy thing. And uh, we did. And I remember the very first prototype pulling up at the in and out with the guy from New Jersey who came out, the designer. And uh, we pulled up and the wheels just kept spinning as we parked. And uh, it was 11 o'clock at night at in and out and everybody just freaked out. All the people walking out of in and out we were just like, you've, you've created something crazy. Uh, and it was the, the, the weirdest experience. It's not something Atri would pursue you know, to know today. But today, it wasn't our brand, so you know it was a private label thing. So, so that's sort of the interesting uh, bit of trivia about spinners and Atri. But there's a lot of wheels that that are, I think, near and dear to our hearts, or at least this design concepts. And that's why we have some wheels that we call our classic series. And other things that sort of remind us of the early days when we were falling in love with cars and falling in love with wheels. And we like some of these older styles, and we like to see them stick around. Uh, we just have to make sure that they do are they well they are appropriate even if you put them on a new car so if it, so the design language is a little bit different they're not so flat and they're not so chunky looking and there's other things that we do uh, to sort of modernize them a little bit and then we also obviously they have to meet all of our current engineering standards so they're much stronger than something we would have made back in the 90s you know so sure so that's my next question so obviously I've, i everyone has their favorite wheel so for example my favorites and i, I look back at the the Oz racing wheels mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously I like the Ferrari, like five fame, five mm-hmm. spoke wheels. And then I really like my classic British wire wheels as long <laughs> as I don't have to clean them. As long right. as someone else clean them, I'd love to have pairs of them. Right, right. So which are the ones that you like or that like, Sasha? I mean, obviously I could assume that you're probably changing the wheels in your car like almost monthly. You have so uh, many selections no, there. not quite. Um, I think it, it, it's funny. I'd say for me personally, you know, um, I, I do like, I said, the more classic stuff. I, I actually am partial to multi-spokes. Okay. Um, but uh, the mesh designs are something that is near and dear to HRE. I will say, if you look at a mesh design, um, the evolution of the mesh designs from HRE from the 90s up through today, it's really, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating uh, um, uh, snapshot of each of the different periods in, say, three, four, five years. And you can see how you can almost follow car design because you can see how the line I was talking about in the beginning, you can see how the lines of the vehicles have changed based on where we were and what period of time based on the way the wheels look. And so I would say in the mid 2000s, our mesh designs were very soft and had very flowing lines, almost like um, like an F430 or an F360. Sure. And then you look today at a 488. You couldn't take a wheel that that has a really soft profile like that. If you put that on a Ferrari, it it would just look. Out of place, yeah. Completely out of place. And so that same design, you take it and you just change uh, the profile and you change the the lines and you it still looks classic, um, but but contemporary at the same time. And that's, I think, um, something that we do that's a little bit different than a lot. We sort of evolve our our wheels and um, as opposed to just sort of creating designs and throwing them on the wall. We're really trying to make sure, as I say, I keep using the word appropriate, that we're trying to make wheels that look appropriate for the vehicles. Sure. And, I mean, I, I was going to have a question. Since I, I like smaller, lightweight wheels because mm-hmm. I spend some, have my maybe one weekend to the track. Probably I'd like to do more, but my wife won't let me. Yeah. But uh, and with the smaller wheels, I'm able to buy smaller, cheaper tires, which right. then I can get past <laughs> the wife. So it's in the last most recent years, we see now even on just standard normal cars, the sizes of the tires like yeah. and the wheels moving up from what would have been in the past, say, as you mentioned, like, 15 inches now yeah. that come close to like 19 inches standard. No. So yeah. how, how difficult is it to, to plan for these designs for these cars and then create a wheel, which you said is obviously the cars are getting bigger with more safety features. How difficult is it to design those, those larger wheels? Uh, it's, it's interesting, it, and, and it's funny because uh, Porsches now, uh, like a GT3 RS or something like that, comes with 21-inch rears, rears, you know, and so 
the fact that 911s come with 21 inch wheels blows my mind. And, and we're in the wheel business. And so we love that. Um, I would say uh, it's, 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 um, it's two, th two things and in, in separate ways. I would say on the design side, it actually gives us more freedom. So when you go bigger on the design side, you have a bigger envelope to work with. And so the proportions of the spokes and everything, you have more freedom to, to uh, make the design prettier. I'll, I'll be honest, uh, you, just, you, can, you really just have the space to make sure that the proportions all work. Um, now, on the engineering side, it's, it's a bit of the opposite. So on the engineering side, now the focus it gets even harder and harder for us to make sure that we're minimizing the overall mass and also the unsprung, I mean, uh, and also the uh, rotational inertia. And so uh, particularly you go in a bigger diameter, you start to add mass toward the outside, and that increases your rotational inertia, which will hurt your acceleration or uh, increase your stopping distance or things like that. So... I would say it's it's a plus from a stylistic perspective and from an engineering perspective, it's the opposite. Now, it's almost a necessity these days with the market that we're working with for Ferraris and Porsches and things. The brakes are so big, you can't put 19-inch wheels on these cars. In fact, almost, uh, I mean, the, the, big, the major target market cars we're dealing with besides the M3, M4, um, they almost all come with 20-inch front wheels now. And so... Um, if you try to put a 19, and we do for motorsport, we'll try to put 18s and 19s and things like that because there's better tire selection. And it becomes a real challenge for us to get these to fit over the brakes. So the manufacturers are moving the brakes bigger. They're moving the wheels bigger. Like I said, stylistically, it's great. Uh, from a performance perspective, it makes our job harder. Um, but that's okay. We, we, you know, we appreciate the challenge. <laughs> sure. Does that mean that we could expect to see HRE going into like 38-inch wheels or <laughs> above the dunk mark? Is that what we could see going forwards? That's obviously not our market. So <laughs> I think we're, we're um, you know, we do make some 24-inch things for SUVs just because they all come with 22s now. So if you put a 22 on it, it's, it, it, it looks actually small. Um, but really... Uh, we are a tree performance wheels, so at the end of the day, we're going to uh, try and make sure that we're making wheels that perform as well as look be beautiful. So sure. And then speaking of obviously performance wheels, and you've mentioned the Porsches, the Ferraris, the Mercedes, the BMWs that you that you that's your target market and what you're creating for. And if we look at the wonderful HRE gallery on your website, I notice a lot of those obviously are being featured with the wheels on. Now, are they all your cars? <laughs> I wish. Yeah, no. Most of the cars on the gallery are those are customer cars. So. Um, or dealer cars, and so uh, you know they're just sending in the images and letting us, letting us use them. So then, if that's the case, so what are you currently driving? Now? Tell <laughs> us a bit about your car history. <laughs> so my car is the embarrassment of HRE. Um, I think I have the cheapest car uh, made in the United States or sold in the United States, and that's a Honda Fit. Okay, um, last gen. I, I think the last gen is actually uh, the fact that I have an opinion as to which generation I think is the best is <laughs> sort of shows the uh, my I got a Honda problem. Okay, um, I love uh, uh, I love two brands uh, in particular Honda and uh, Porsche, and um, uh, the car was meant to be an interim car. Uh, yeah, um, and uh, the, the reality is I, I I love it a lot, and it's turned out to be uh, what I'm sticking with right now. I was going to get something new and ended up getting a Ducati recently, so. Um, probably holding off a little bit, um, and I'll be honest, I actually love it. I know everyone um, makes fun of me at work for it. Sure, uh, but um, it, it's uh, sort of the. Uh, we the even have a few joke. giggles there in the back. <laughs> yeah, college. Yeah, my guys are like, "Oh gosh, don't talk about the Honda Fit." <laughs> So then also, I know that obviously, that as I've attended as well, the um, HRE facility yeah. down there is a, a wonderful place. I've done a fantastic tour. And the the events that you put on there, I mean, some of the best certainly that I get to go yeah. to and go and enjoy as both a, 
a journalist and an enthusiast. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about yeah. those and how they came about, so to speak? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think you're referring primarily to our open house. We do some other events, but I think our open house has now become our biggest event. Uh, it started, I don't know, eight, nine years ago, and it was obviously, it was probably 50 people, and it was a few cars in the parking lot. It was really small. Uh, and it's grown into something with hundreds of cars and a couple thousand people attending. And it's, I think it's a really testament to the guys here. I mean, they, they do a great job uh, setting it all up. It's a lot of work, a lot of commitment. And uh, it's, it's just grown organically over time. And now I, I, I think we can also, it's, it's one of the bigger or biggest uh, exotic car events in Southern California or California at all. So it's really impressive uh, and, it's, and it's neat for us. We get to, uh, to, to be a part of something like that. And I think it's w – the reason we really do it, though, is because um, you can go see fancy cars almost everywhere, right? Yeah, you know, Southern California. Yeah, I mean, every, <laughs> well, every weekend there's yeah, a cars and coffee somewhere. We just saw an Aventador SV driving up the street. So, you know, we the real reason we do it is to open the doors. And not just to show people the facility. The facility um, uh, is impressive. Uh, but I, I think it gives an opportunity for our customers and fans to actually meet the team. And as, as impressive as the facility is, honestly, the team is, is even, even more so. Um, we are, we're very strict about our culture. We have a culture based on trust. And that means we have to trust your intentions, your integrity, and we have to trust your ability. And if, you don't, if we can't trust either of those things, then you, you don't get to stay on the team. And when you have that, when it does work, um, you get teamwork like you've never seen before because with it you get forgiveness and you get all these other things. And morale stays really high. And you get to come to work with a bunch of wonderful people. And I get, I'm lucky I get to come to work with a team that I adore. And um, I hope they adore me, but I doubt it. But <laughs> I love coming to work, and I love working with all of them. And they build all of this. I mean, it isn't me, definitely not. Um, the open house is, is a way for everyone to not just, like I said, see what we're creating and how we're creating and why we're creating that way, but to, to meet the people behind it. And I think um, that's a unique opportunity that we don't normally get. And so I think we really value that time. So. Sure. No, I mean, the, the team that I've met and worked with are all sensational people. And that, like I said, very open, great yeah. to talk to, and certainly very knowledgeable, I would put yeah. it that way. Yeah, for sure. But um, speaking of the team, can you tell us a little bit about what they're currently working on? <laughs> Is that at all possible? Can we well, get this thing out of you today? Let's just say, I, I think that, you know, for HRE for the future, um, we're always being pressured. There's, there, there's competitors. Um, our customers want nicer and better and, and so on. And, now, and the OEs, the, the manufacturers, are, are getting much more in tune with not just making wheels that are lighter, uh, but also prettier. And so the pressure from the OEs is also always there. They're making better and better wheels, finally. And so I think for HRE, the challenge is, okay, what do we, where do we go from here? And um, obviously, a lot of the things we're looking at have to do with maybe new materials and more advanced materials, things like that. Um, and that, that's going to actually change the design language in some cases. If you have things that have higher specific strength, your, your cross-sections get thinner. Things change. The proportions may change. So we have to adapt maybe our design style even a little bit as we start to adopt some new things. And I can't really talk about some of the new materials that we're looking at, but um, yeah. There's, there's probably something close on the horizon. So. Could that mean that we might see something maybe later in this year at some of the events, possibly? Uh, possibly. Oh, wow. Yeah. Very much looking forward yeah. to that. Uh, Alan, is there anything else that we should uh, maybe mention? I mean, obviously, we talked about your event, and we I think we didn't mention the fantastic food trucks of also the <laughs> one of the main reasons why I like coming so early and staying so late at the event there. For sure. But um, 
No, I think I, what I would just say is, um, you know, we have an open door. Mm-hmm. So if anybody ever wants to visit HRE, I do recommend just coming down if you're in San Diego or in Car- near Carlsbad, near, as we're in Vista, which is near Legoland. If you're ever down in the San Diego region, you want to stop by and see. Um, if you come by, somebody will give you a tour, you know, and uh, uh, it's helpful if you call us first. So we're prepared. Uh, but, you know, if you did just stop by, somebody will still give you a tour. It's, you know, for sure. We have an open door. And they could probably find your phone number and everything like that on one of the websites or yeah. any of the social media platforms. Yeah, com is the best place, right, Perfect. our website. So, Thank you so much for your time here today, Alan. It's been a real pleasure having you and for driving up all the way from yeah, yeah no problem for the peterson automotive museum and today we're meeting with doug herbert doug have you had a chance to look around the museum i love this museum absolutely i came here uh, several years ago before the big uh, remodeling deal had been done and i thought it was impressive then and now when you come up oh my what just before you even walk in the building you're blown away and then you walk in the building and i love there's not many cars here I don't love. I, I really do. I know. I was just about to ask you, Zach. Obviously, you've been in, and I know we talked beforehand, and you said you had a proper tour uh, about a month back, but then you've been in and out of the lobby twice today. The lobby's changed already. We've yeah. gone from BMW to Ferrari, and then, you like you say, once you get inside, which which area of the museum do you pick? I mean, there's so many great, great automobiles on display and so much history. I like the, uh, I like the old cars. You know, I, I like... Just the history, because I'm I'm, an, I'm a history guy. I love automotive history, and some of those, uh, well, even though even the Bugattis and the well, those the Ferraris, uh, those movie cars. There's just not that many that I don't like. The hardest part is figuring out which one you like the most. Okay, if I'm going to break in here and steal a car, which one would I steal? I don't even know what one I'd steal. Well, if we do, we have to take that offline because obviously we can't talk about <laughs> maybe bor- maybe borrowing these cars. Well, borrowing, yeah. No, I yeah. would bring it back. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> eventually it needs to be in a museum. Yeah, and I mean, it might have a few more miles on it. It might be a little bit dirty. I mean, the team can take care of that. Yeah, but, yeah absolutely. Uh, but uh, speaking about history, if we talk about your your drag racing history, and then, but firstly, before that, let's just go into what you're currently doing now. I mean, if I'm looking at your biography now, I mean, it's reading your ex drag racer probably still part-time drag racing probably still racing whenever you get the chance these days you're also the host for the straight line on the motor network you're also working with the brakes program which we'll be talking about later and then also you've got the performance parts that you sell as your business as well so i mean how do you go about doing all these jobs and why not give someone else a chance to get on the back <laughs> it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of jobs i'm kind of i've been doing the the high performance parts for years since i was a kid my dad was one of the original hot rodding guys. He was one of in the first hot rodder, uh, hot rod magazine advertisers. Even uh, my dad, Chet Herbert, has been in it. You know, he was in it for his whole life. And I love hot rodding. I love cars. Um, you know, things. Uh, top fuel racing. There's nothing more exciting than top fuel racing. I mean, anybody that's ever seen a top fuel car, it's like these these things make ten thousand horsepower and go zero to three hundred thirty miles an hour in four seconds. That's pretty exciting. Um, but uh, you know, that keeps me pretty busy, uh, you know, staying focused on what I really have been dedicated to doing since 2008, which is the Brakes uh, Teen Safe Driving Program. And that has really been my focus uh, the past few years. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's what's closest to my heart and it's what we love, what we really love, uh, you know, what I really love doing. And we've just got an incredible team. We're doing some really neat work. So, sure. So, I mean, let's start with brakes and let's touch on that first. So, obviously, it came about through a, a tragedy at your end with uh, the loss of your two boys, John and James, 17 and 12. 
um, but out of that tragedies come breaks. So how did that, I mean, what was the driving, obviously I understand the driving force behind it, but how did it come about and how did you go in that direction? In 2008, uh, you know, the thing that I was worried about most was wind lights, you know, and wind races and low ETs and top speeds. And then all of a sudden, uh, I got a phone call that my two boys were killed in a car crash. And I thought, I must be the only person in the world this has ever happened to. That, that, that could never happen to anybody. I must be the most unlucky guy in the whole world. And then going to find out that driving car crashes are the number one cause of death with teenagers more than the next four things put together. And I had no idea. I didn't know that it was, that it, that it was such a big deal. Cause you don't hear about it. Sure. You know, I, I mean, you hear about it, but you know, it's one of those things people take for granted. I think so. And uh, until it hits you at home and then all of a sudden it didn't just affect me at all the, all the kids at their schools, the whole community, uh, everybody in drag racing. Cause everybody knew my kids. They grew up with my kids out the racetrack. And so it, uh, I decided that, what I wanted to do was do something to be able to make a difference with these teenagers, get them to realize the dangers of driving a car, the dangers associated with that. Because I didn't know 5,000 teenagers, 6,000, the number varies, but it's thousands of teenagers every year killed in car crashes. And I decided, okay, well, if there's one thing I can do, I can teach them about driving. And maybe not even me. We're going to put some people together. I knew people that were excellent driving instructors and that we could teach these teenagers something about uh, you know, the love of cars, part of it, but also teaching them uh, some techniques and some, uh, you know, teaching them how to respect the car, how to be able to control the car, some vehicle dynamics with the car, and, and really mostly about making good decisions and what how those decisions will affect a, a teenager, especially for the rest of their life and, 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 and their whole family and their friends and everybody else. Sure. So I know obviously you've got a program that's running here in Southern California this weekend. We do it in Orange County Fairgrounds this weekend, but we do a bunch of locations all around here. Yeah, but what I was wanting to try and find out is what's the impact that happens on that local community once you go in there and work with the teenagers? What do you find is the results that come from, from working with those teams? Well, it's strange. The first few times that we normally come to, uh, come to an, an area, we might go there, and it's difficult for us to get the classes filled up. In one weekend, we'll train 150 to 200 teenagers, and we require the parents to come too because parents are pretty important in a early, you know, in a teenager's early driving career because they're driving their parents' car, their parents' van. So typically, we'll have maybe 200, 200 teenagers and 250 or 300 parents. So 500 drivers go through the program. They have a different set of cars and instructors. Uh, Kia provides vehicles for us to put these teenagers in, put the parents in, and the instructors that we have are like who I would want to teach my kids about being safe driver. They teach the secret service guys that drive the president. They do stunts in movies. They work at BMW driving center, uh, Bondurant, you know, like they're really excellent driving instructors. And, uh, we teach these teenagers about how to, uh, you know, how to, how to really drive a car, not just driver's ed. We're not driver's ed. We are advanced driving situations, defensive driving, um, you know, we put these teenagers in tough positions that they're going to likely encounter some point in their driving career on the road and, and teach them what to do when they run a wheel off the road. What do they, what's going to happen when they activate their analog brakes, how bad 
you know, we put drunk goggles on him. How bad is that going to affect your ability to drive a car and distractions? You know, living here in L.A., right, everywhere you go, they're, they're on their cell phone, they're messing with this, they're doing their hair. I mean, you never know what you're going to run into. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing what you see people doing in their cars. I mean, I think I saw someone uh, eating a bowl of cereal early this week while driving around. I mean, look, it's not for me to judge, but that's probably something better served spending an extra five minutes at home to do rather than doing it in the, mo- in the car. Yep, you're exactly right. And then and brakes really came about from my desire to teach my boys' friends about being safer drivers and being more responsible. So that in 2008, I trained 50. Uh, we trained 50 of, of, of my boys' friends. And I kind of figured out that this was really going to be something that I could make an impact in memory of my boys in the community, in the country. Uh, and so we trained those 50 kids. And my boy's friends actually came up with that name, Breaks, which is an acronym for Be Responsible and Keep Everyone Safe. Like, wow, these young kids came up with that. It was, uh, it was amazing. And it means, you know, it really makes it uh, mean a lot that, that the boys came up with that. And you stole my question because that's what I was just about to ask. I mean, it's obviously it's, it's, a, it's a brainwave that for the idea in itself. And the name, Breaks, is, it just seems so to, to go so well together. Put on the brakes. I mean, that's what you – know, when you get in, you know, driving a top fuel car, people ask me, well, what's the most important thing to know about driving a top fuel car? And I say, well, knowing when to shut it off, that is the most important thing. You got to know when to say, okay, I, enough. And then it's the same with defensive driving. I mean, obviously, like you said, there's so many things that can go wrong. A wheel off, a tire blowout, anything that can under imagine hitting a piece of black ice. I mean, how many uh, people have you had go through the school? Could you sort of have a rough estimate of the number of people that have done through there? Absolutely. So that first year, we trained those 50 teenagers. And I didn't even know if that was going to be something that was going to be ongoing. We just trained those 50 teenagers. And I had about 300 parents contact me and say, hey, we want you to teach our teenagers about doing this as well. And so the next year, we trained about 300. And then I had 500 more that contacted me and said, we want you to train ours. And so it's just kind of grown and grown. And we actually just trained our 20,000th teenager last month. So one-on-one instruction, that's a lot of teenagers, 20,000. That is that is a lot of teenagers, 20,000. And the, you've got to think that the impact that that's going to have through them being driving the roads, the skills that they're picking up, I mean, it's fabulous what you've been able to do for them. You know, and, and I didn't really know really what the impact was, to be honest. I would get letters and phone calls and stuff uh, from parents and from teenagers saying, hey, something I learned helped me from getting in a crash. And we didn't really know. And so last year, the University of North Carolina took our – uh, our data from the students that have been through the program in North Carolina, there was about uh, about 5,000 North Carolina students. Sure. The university took their driving records and compared it to standard Department of Transportation driving records for teenagers and compare, made a comparison. And what we found out that totally blew me away, the teenagers that have been through our program over a five-year period, so some of them might be 22, 23 years old, were 64% less likely to be in a crash. That's incredible. That really i would have been happy if it was one percent yeah five percent 64 percent just blew me away yeah i mean that's that's amazing to hear that figure um and what's what's next for the program i mean it's uh, across the united states correct yes we're uh, like this weekend we've got a class in charlotte north carolina and then also here in orange county uh we do los angeles at the la county fairgrounds at the fairplex with the drag strip uh pit area uh, places all over the country. We're going to be in 30 cities this year and 20 different states. So it's really become, uh, you know, it's my therapy, really. It's my sure. therapy to go out and be able to make a difference in these teenagers' lives and these families' lives. And we require the parents to come as well. So they 
because uh, it's been a long time since they've taken driver's ed, and so a lot of times we find that, that they actually have some work to do, too. Sure. So that's my next question. So who is, uh, between the teens and the parents, who generally picks it up quicker? Who's more susceptible to being taught or retaught, maybe, some of these ideas? Uh, the teenagers will typically pick up quicker, but the parents, a lot of times, seem to get more of a light bulb goes on, like, wow, I, don't, I didn't realize I was doing this wrong this whole time. Or they've been teaching their teenager, pump the brakes, you know, well... Pump the, you don't pump the brakes when you have a new car. So just different things that teenagers are learning from their parents because they've been sitting in the back seat watching us for 15, 16 years before they start driving. So they already know how to drive because they've been watching us. So have we been teaching them good or have we been teaching them bad? Most of the time, it's not so good. Yeah, so it's nice to, to sort of iron out those maybe those little kinks or these little things that they've picked up that maybe should not have been quite picked up that, in that way. Right, exactly. So we're actually making the parents better at the same time. And they don't go through together. The teenagers go with one set of vehicles, yeah. one set of instructors. The parents go with another set of kid provided vehicles and another set of instructors. So they're doing the same thing separately because parents, uh, you know, we were 16 before two or 17, whatever. You don't act the same in front of your parent as you do when you're by your, with your friends or with your peers. Certainly. And so we kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the instructors become, friends with the kids but also mentoring them and teaching them techniques and it's a it's a transformation that happens it is the most fun thing to see and i could imagine especially with some of the techniques that no doubt the the instructors have put them through that sometimes maybe the occasional word might slip out that a parent might not want their <laughs> child to hear them say potentially that could be yeah it's called the os moment yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah. <laughs> the last thing that comes out of your mouth before you hit something or or whatever we that's the idea is there's no there's nothing to hit where we're doing this you know we're doing this these big parking lots with a you know close course so there's uh you know whether it's we're teaching them about skid avoidance oversteer underskeer uh distractions wheel drop off analog braking uh, emergency lane changing um there's you know there's just so many things and the class is only four hours so it's like drinking from a fire hose for four hours but I think more importantly than just the skills that we teach them, we're teaching them that there's a lot to learn. And I have a lot of passion for cars and just automotive in general. And I think, unfortunately, teenagers now, they don't have probably the same opportunity that I had when I was a kid. We had high school uh, auto shop and all that, and a lot, most of the schools don't have that anymore. So teenagers, I think... In a lot of cases, uh, the cars have just become a transportation for them and not like part of your heart and soul. Like when I was a kid, you know, you put you wax your car, you put wheels and tires on, you work on the engine. And it's not as easy to do that now. And and particularly, there's just not as uh, the cars are harder to work on and more complicated. Sure. But it's also it's just it's different. And, uh, uh, you know, coming here to the museum or. Or the different things that SEMA does with all the automotive aftermarket. That's all exciting to me. And I, and I like being able to get teenagers particularly excited about a car. Like all they thought it was was transportation. Now all of a sudden they're realizing, whoa, there's a lot. There's a lot more to this. And I didn't know everything I thought I I know. I mean, like sometimes even a car can be literally a living and breathing member of one's family, one <laughs> might say. <laughs> That's exactly right. But uh, speaking of the Brakes program, how would people want to get involved with it in the communities or in the local community? How would they go about doing that? Well, there's so many different ways. Brakes is a 501c3 charity. Um, the cost, we get asked that, well, how much does it cost to go? It's free. There's, there's no cost. We do fundraising. We have a, we're having a big gala uh, next week in Charlotte, North Carolina. We have a golf tournament, a pancake breakfast. We do you know, a lot of things to raise funds so that we can put these schools on for, for no cost to – to uh, people that come. So that's a big thing. 
Um, you know, we have several things on our website. It's uh, putonthebrakes.org is the website. Uh, but people could go on there. We've got one section that's called Bring Brakes to Your Town because, you know, unfortunately, uh, tragedies happen all over the country. And uh, some we, we had a, a high school senior that her best friend was killed in a car crash. And she called us up and said, look, I want to bring brakes to my town for my friend in honor of my friend that got killed in a car crash. And so she, this little girl, she went around. Uh, she raised funds all around in her town from you know everybody from a five dollar donation to a car dealer uh, helping us and and we ended up bringing brakes to her town for her friend and uh you know so we do things like that which is really neat to make an impact in the community but there's so many different things uh you know that brakes is in need of more schools you know obviously funding donations uh it's uh, it's a, it's a, I had no idea how big of a thing I was getting involved with. I just wanted to help my kids' friends, and then it's kind of turned into a turned into something that's been uh, you know it's changed my life. It's really rewarding. And now speaking of the gala, it's the the denim and diamonds gala. Is that correct? Denim and diamond denim and diamonds gala. Yeah, t- say that three times fast. I know. It's <laughs> okay. So how did that name come about? I mean, you are obviously the one wearing the denim and diamonds all the time. Is that what you're telling us? Though? Well, no, not really. Uh, my uh, my significant other uh, Mimi and another friend of mine. Uh, uh, oh. God. Gotta cut that part out here. Let's see. Uh, Karen Comstock. Karen Comstock decided, okay, you need to do something other than just the black tie gala. You got to come up with uh, you know something that's a catch. And so she decided, okay, denim and diamonds. Well, that would be fun because mostly you know a lot of the crowd that we get coming to our gala is the drag racer. So sure. you know John Force doesn't carry a, uh, a tuxedo in his bag. You know, so he's going to come in in a in a in an old crew uniform and a pair of jeans. So. We just figured that we're going to make it a little bit of fun, and uh, it's not going to be a hoedown, but it's going to be like girls are going to wear all their fancy stuff because they look forward to being able to dress up and get a picture, you know, with all their fancy clothes on. And then the boys can wear – I'm going to wear a tuxedo top with a pair of jeans and a really uh, shiny pair of bedazzled shoes. I don't know exactly what – I'm going to make them, uh, we're going to do a little customizing on it. So you're saying we should really be looking forward to your appearance and your outfit then, is that what you're telling well, us? Yeah. You're going to be the I'll star be, of the show? <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be Facebooking and tweeting out some, uh, some various pictures of, uh, of our apparel that night, I'm sure. And then I also understand there's an online auction as well that's going along with it. Actually, yeah, and we've got some incredible items on there. It's on. Uh, there's a link on the putonthebrakes.org website, but we've got a we've got a 1980 Corvette that's like a brand new off the showroom. I think it's got 5,000 miles on this thing. Uh, Rusty Wallace gave us uh, a week. I, I believe it's a week at his house in Cabo San Lucas to auction off to raise some money. We've got all kinds of jewelry and. Uh, Oh, geez, I can't even think of everything that we have in there, but all kinds of super neat stuff that would probably appeal to everybody from one side of the world to the other. Yeah, I know. I've just got to hide the my credit card from the wife when she <laughs> takes a look at it. That's one thing I will say. Oh, good. Don't hide that card from her. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then I did have one particular question. So obviously, Brakes talks about uh, defensive driving, and I know that in my household in particular that uh, we have a trophy that's up for grabs that my wife has keeps under lock and key, which is the Parallel Parking Award. Uh, freely admit that my wife is by far the better parallel parker. Not that I would ever generally hit the curb that often, but she is uh, at 99% of the time absolute perfect and in that space in less than 15 seconds. So comparing That's pretty that, good. how does that relate to you and your family and your household? Who takes home that trophy? Uh, you know, for 
for whatever reason, I'm always the assigned driver. Like I'm the, I'm the driver. I'm always been the driver. So I usually am the driver. I don't know if I'm the best parallel parker, but, uh, uh, I'm the one, I think that they like to see me do it. And that way, if I do hit the curb, they've got somebody to go, ha ha. Sure. See, you're not perfect. So I got, I got to get reminded every once in a while that I'm not actually perfect. I do hit a curb and mess up a wheel once in a while. Sure. Now, but let's go back to maybe not focusing on that kind of driving history, but let's talk about your NHRA driving history. So if I'm looking down what I've got written here in front of me, and please, this is certainly correct me if I'm wrong here, but that's 10 NRH, NHRA National Event Championship wins. Yep. Four yep. Top Fuel World Champions. Those are IHRA top fuel championships, yep. And then the first driver did more than 300 miles per hour in an elimination heat. In eliminations, yeah, that's right. Kenny Bernstein was first to go 300 miles an hour. I was the first to go 300 miles an hour, actually an elimination run, and the second person to go 300 miles an hour uh, overall. So that that 300-mile-per-hour club, it was a small meeting. It was just Kenny Bernstein and I for uh, quite some time until I think uh, I think Scott Coletta came on and maybe Don Perdome came on right after us. So the, the meeting started to get a little bit more fun. At, at first, it was just pretty boring. <laughs> so it was, it was boring at 290, but once it goes yeah. to 300, that's what it was like. That's the excitement took off? Well, yeah. You know, the, the top fuel cars are so much fun to drive. They're just, uh, you know, four seconds going down the track. But when you replay the run in your head, it's like it seems like it's a minute or two minutes going down the track. It's your your brain goes into the zone and you are just so focused on being part of that car and being part of the machine and knowing exactly what's going on while the car is going down the track. It is, uh, it is uh, an incredible feeling to drive a top fuel car. Well, that's actually my next question. So can you sort of like talk us through the experience of driving that top fuel car and like the pre setup of getting it there, then how you're feeling when you're in the start line, they give you the signals and when you watch the tree and the lights change to how it feels like going through the motions and then sure. Yeah. What's that like? Well, the one thing about a top field car is there's a whole lot of work and a very little amount of racing. So you really have to enjoy the work because sure. <laughs> you're, you know, you're working, working, working for hours or a team of eight guys will work on it for 45 minutes to get it ready to go race. Uh, but you're, uh, you know, you do a lot of visualizing in your head because, you know, you're not in the car racing that long. So you're visualizing and anticipating. I don't know if anticipating is the right word, but you're, you're going through every different scenario in your head that could possibly happen during that run. You know, what are you going to do if it smokes the tires? What are you going to do if it, uh, uh, you know, if a tire blows out? What are you going to do if the other guy in the other lane doesn't want to stage his car? All these different things you kind of go through, not worrying about, but just figuring out, I'm going to do this because you don't have time to think about it when you're going 300 miles an hour. You just have to do it. Uh, so a lot of preparation before you get in the car. And uh, once you get in the car, you get yourself – uh, I call it you just get yourself in the zone. You you make yourself feel like you're part of that car. And uh, it's just a big machine, and you're just one piece of that machine uh, to where you n- can feel and understand and, and hear everything that's going on in the car. Um, once you start the car and you're pulling up to stage, you're, you're just really being aware of where you are, where you are on the track, because uh, as fast as the cars go, being a driver, you have to be a little bit ahead of that car because uh, if you're not, you're going to get yourself in trouble. So I think that's a big, big part of it. Going down the track, like I said, in uh, in that four-second run, it just feels like it's a minute takes to go down the track. And not so much now, but when I was racing every week, I could get out of the car and I could tell you how much, you know, what the ET was, what the mile per hour was within a couple because you're just so used to what it feels like, what it sounds like. And, you know, you know if a valve spring broke or if a lifter broke or uh, 
clutch hub came apart or whatever. You just knew, you know, you know when you get out of the car what to look for. Or sometimes you just shut it off and you say, I don't know, something's wrong, I don't know what. And then you come and you find out there's a cord torn in the tire or something strange. Sure. And then, so obviously you talk about the team that would help to put that all together and bring that all together. So why don't you talk about the team and how many people are actually working on the cars behind the scenes to make that that four-second lap pass? Well, pretty much in every uh, current NHRA top fuel or funny car team, there's probably eight guys working on the car and then another couple guys analyzing data uh, to where they can make tuning adjustments on the car, you know, on either the clutch or the engine or a combination. But there's guys working on the bottom end, working on each cylinder head, working on the clutch, uh, working on the fuel. There's, uh, there's a lot of work that goes on on a top fuel car, but there's pretty much eight dedicated crew guys that are uh, very – most of them are very specific on what they do on the car, but the guys that are probably the leaders can also – you know they know how to do probably do a everything. a little bit of everything, yeah, sure. Yeah. And then you know some of the uh, crew chief guys – are more you know more involved than that a lot of the crew chiefs now they might have uh you know on on one of uh i'm thinking jack beckman's car he's got jimmy proc he's got john medlin he's got chris cunningham so he's got three really crew chiefs that are can run the car by themselves three guys working on one car so they're uh, the amount of information and data and knowledge that goes into running a car is incredible but there's what I like to say is, well, there's a million ways to do it wrong and only one way to do it right. So, and, and just the time you think there's only a million ways to do it wrong, you find out there's a million and one. Sure. And I get that when it, I'm assuming that when it goes right, that's when everything aligns and lines the perfect one and everyone's happy and there's high fives all around at the end of it. You're right. And it's amazing now uh, to watch the cars run. There's so many of the cars that go down the track every run, which is just unbelievable considering all the pieces that are involved how fast these cars are accelerating. They accelerate at six Gs. You know, they go zero to 100 miles per hour in less than a second. So they're, it's... Uh, they're fairly uh, shifted. Yeah, everything has to be perfect. And it's, a, it's amazing that you can get so many things to work perfectly so many different runs in a row. It's, it really is. And then speaking of uh, your NHRA days, have you got any stories that you might be able to tell us a little bit about? Any crazy things? Oh, boy. I've, uh, I don't know. I've got so many crazy things. It's hard to say. Uh... You know, I, I just had such a good experience being able to, growing up with racing, uh, my dad was involved in racing, my aunt had Drag News Magazine, and, and she was involved in racing, so I was, I was really, uh, I loved racing, and, uh, uh, you know, my dad, uh, I was lucky enough to get a lot of experiences with him when I was young, going to the races, whether it was to the NASCAR races out here, to Ontario Motor Speedway or Riverside, uh, Bobby Allison was a friend of my dad. So I got to go as a kid and see Bobby Allison and Donnie Allison and Richard Petty. And that was really cool. And then going to the drag races and seeing big daddy, Don Garlitz and, uh, the snake Perdome and mongoose McEwen. And then actually as I went on and I got a chance to race these guys and, you know, I got to race big daddy. Like when I was a kid, I would have never imagined that to, to actually be able to do that and go out there and, and accomplish that and beat them. Uh, that is, uh, you know, even thinking about it now, I'm just like, that just makes me smile. That was so cool to be able to go out there and race with those guys and, and uh, you know, do something incredible. Uh, and, you know, just, gosh, it was, it was so neat. 
to uh, to, you know, to be able to be involved in that was for such a long time. Sure. And in your time uh, on the drag strips, is there any drag strip in particular that you felt more of an affinity towards, that you felt more at home at, or was your lucky track, say, for example? You know, I had a couple. Uh, Pomona was like always my favorite because I grew up here in Los Angeles area, and you know, going to Pomona when I was a kid, hanging on the fence and watching the snake and watching Big Daddy. That was so. That was just such a big deal. And when I won Pomona in 2001, that I just thought, you know, I had died and gone to heaven. I won Pomona. That was the only race that I was ever at. My dad was at the race. My boys were at the race. Everybody was there and saw me win the race. That was really cool, winning top field at Pomona. Um, The other place that I had just incredible success was at Bristol, at Bristol Dragway, Thunder Valley. Every year from 1992, I won the race every year through 1997 so all those years in a row it was like we pulled into bristol and we just won and i don't know what it was but i loved that place loved racing there loved going there and it's just such a neat uh you know they call it thunder valley because the drag strip runs down in between two big mountains and you can hear the thunder and the echo it's so cool because that's one thing that certainly I know from experiencing uh, first-hand drag racing, when I can, I've been lucky enough to photograph it and get up close. It's certainly not just the, the sound, but it's the momentum and the physicality of the air that the cars push past when they're actually going and up and running. Oh, you I don't mean, even hear them. It's like you feel them in a, your body. They shake a, the ground. It's an incredibly visceral experience. <laughs> yeah. So that's one thing I will say. I mean, it's not, there's not many places in the world where I think I've had to go where I've had to wear earplugs and then wear protection over my earplugs <laughs> just to make sure, and then still not be able to hear anything. I mean, it's wonderful. It's Everybody wonderful. asks me, does that hearing affect your, you know, does the top field cars affect your hearing? And I always go, huh? What? What? <laughs> yeah. Now, speaking of Pomona Fairplex, it wouldn't be right for us to, to not talk about that photograph of you from 1999. Oh, boy. Everybody likes to talk about that. You know, I do got to say that was, that was a spectacular picture. Uh, that explosion was probably, it was probably the biggest explosion in drag racing history. Um, at that time, the NHRA didn't have a limitation on nitromethane. So we could run, I think that day we were running 98 or 99% nitromethane, where now, uh, you know, you, you can't run that. You have to run 90% or less nitromethane. Yeah. And at that time, we also had, we very were f- first getting started on uh, electronic ignition. So the top field cars had electronic ignitions, and there was a little bit of a gremlin in those electronic ignitions. And so that was really probably what caused that big explosion. Um, but wow, that was, uh, I had no idea sitting in the car, how bad of an explosion it was until I got out of the car and there was no engine left and the frame rails were blown out of the car. And, uh, it was, uh, you know, I, I had no idea pieces had went off and, and hit people. And luckily no one got hurt bad, but there were some guys, uh, there were some guys that got hurt. One guy came up to me and he had a big cut across his head and, and he, and he says, hey, this piece of your blower hit me in the head. And I go, oh, my gosh, I'm sorry about that. Are you going to sue me? And he goes, no, man, will you sign, sign the it. part? And I go, absolutely. <laughs> How about a T-shirt and a hat? I mean, what else can I do for you? Well, yeah, I mean, so before we wrap up today, uh, Doug, I just want to talk, uh, before we start off, I should say, I just want to talk more about breaks. So where can any of the listeners here on the podcast today, if they want to go out, where do we want to find our breaks? Obviously, I'm assuming they'll be able to find stuff here on the Peterson Car Stories website, but what about the websites in particular, your social media outlets? Where else can we find out? Yeah, absolutely. Our uh, our social media outlets are put on the breaks. So on Twitter, uh, Facebook is Breaks with Doug Herbert. They can go, uh, my Twitter is Doug Herbert. It's pretty simple, just my name. 
but the website is really probably the biggest source of information. There's some great videos on there that explain about the charity, what we do, uh, the different exercises that we do at the classes. It also gives locations for the different classes on there so people could go and see if Breaks is coming anywhere where they are. Uh, we've got wait lists for new locations that we haven't been to yet so we can start building up uh, you know, interest in the cities where we haven't been yet to try and build enough of a, of a base up that we can go to new places like Portland, Oregon, or uh, you know Denver, Colorado, or, or different places that we haven't been yet. So a lot of excitement and, uh, and a lot of information available at the website. So putonthebreaks.org would be the best place to probably go to get information. And then also, lastly, it would be un unfair to talk about that uh, Gali book coming up and the online auction that people can go and check out those items on. Yeah, that gala. If, you, if anyone is going to be in the Charlotte area this next week for the NHRA Nationals at the Z-Max Dragway, I would highly recommend coming to this party because you're going to have to eat dinner anyways on Thursday night, so you might as well just come, have a good time, put your bling stuff on, uh, even if you don't have bling. Put a pair of jeans on and dress up with your, with your best shirt and come on over. We have most all of the drag racers usually come over and support it because they were all there. You know, they're all my friends and, and they, they knew my boys. They love my boys. And so they, uh, they come, we usually get a lot of the NASCAR guys will come to the, uh, to the dinner as well. And, and, uh, we've got, uh, entertainment this year, Jim Oberhofer, which is Connie Coletta's crew chief on the uh, Mac tools, top field dragster for the Doug, uh, Doug Coletta drives. He is going to be our speaker speaking a little bit about adversity and, and the way, uh, different things have affected him in his life. His wife, uh, fought a really tough battle with cancer uh, for years, and she, you know, she eventually lost. That took her life, but it really taught uh, Jimmo some things that really, uh, it's a, it's a touching story. And he knew my boys, and and he's been a great supporter. Connie Coletta has been a great supporter. Scott Coletta uh, was a, a dear friend of mine. So. I think just between the entertainment that we're going to have, usually, usually we'll get John Forster coming. He's like entertainment all by himself. You don't even need to do anything. You just hand him a microphone and he starts going and everybody laughs. Uh, I think between that and the, and the auction stuff and the, uh, the dinner, the food will be fabulous. It'll be a super great time. And like I said, the, the auction items are even available online. So anybody could go in there and check it out and see what we have. Well, perfect. No, so Doug, I really appreciate your time today. And uh, thank you so much for stopping by. James, thank you. Well, I'll look forward to it and uh, look forward to going on nobreaking.com and checking things out. Thank you so much. And if anyone there listening outside, if you like this podcast, please tell your friends who can either find us in the iTunes store, under Car Stories, or the Peterson Museum Car Stories section of the website. And remember, when in Los Angeles, to come and check out the Peterson Museum. Doug, thanks again for everything. Don't miss the Peterson Museum. Thank you, James. Well, we hope you enjoyed those two incredible interviews with Alan Peltier from HRE Wheels and Doug Herbert from Brakes. As always, you can find the Car Stories podcast on iTunes or on Shout Engine. And stay tuned over the coming weeks for lots more incredible automotive content. Thank you very much. 